Hi guys, here we are today with Adam Riccoboni. Um, Adam, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm great. Great to be here, Lawrence. Good, good, good. So, um, Adam, you're obviously uh, founder and CEO of Critical Future. I think I'm right in saying that you've also lectured at universities. You've been featured in the Financial Times, the BBC. Um, you've also correct me if I'm wrong, but you've advised um, the British Parliament on how AI could be used to um, fight COVID-19. And somehow you've also had the time to write um, The AI Age, um, a book really like depicting um, where we stand, where um, how AI is going to shape our lives. And uh, the I would, I would like to say the pros and cons of it, it's an evaluation of use cases of, of of how AI is going to develop and uh, change our world, essentially. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Busy man. Uh, is, yes, is, that's have I missed correct. anything at all? Or um, no, not at all. Yes, have a book. Yeah, the, the AI Age is, is the book. There's also a, a, a new book I'm an editor of about mathematics and machine learning coming out by Taylor Francis um, either this year or next year. How, how's the writing coming along? Very fine, yeah, yeah, very good, yeah. That, that's a bit more of a, of a technical academic book. The AI age is, is written more for, for everybody, particularly people in business, to understand how businesses can use AI and the impact it's gonna have on jobs um, and what skills people need to get ahead in this era. Um, you know, similarly to if you could see the digital transformation coming, um, you may, change jobs or focus on certain industries. And you can see this huge transformation that's coming from artificial intelligence now. So you know, which industries should you focus on? What skills do you need? These are all important things for people to think about. Well, I mean, one thing you talk about in the book is actually AI phobia. Um, and even though obviously I, I, I work within the industry, I would describe myself as probably an AI phobic in, in some aspects when it comes to the jobs market. Um, I certainly see huge opportunity, huge potential. Um, it's a rapidly growing market. It's gonna create new jobs, new industries and subsectors to support those industries. So I, I do feel we're sitting on the cusp of the dawn of a new era of capitalism. At the same time, I also see how it can just completely eradicate the need for humans in the workplace. Um, tell me I'm being slightly dramatic. Tell me I'm wrong. Um, you know, how is AI going to really um, shape um, our jobs in the future? So, yes, that topic of AI phobia goes very deep um, and it goes back a long way. People feel that man is losing importance, the machines are taking over certainly goes back centuries um, and, and decades uh, as well. Um, this century, people have been concerned about that. Actually, Lyndon B. Johnson, the American president, did a big study to see if machines are gonna take away jobs. And he concluded that ultimately, machines don't take away jobs, they take away tasks. Um, so, and that's really, I think, the, the right conclusion. Um, Artificial intelligence, automation will take away particularly repetitive jobs, jobs that people don't really enjoy, um, jobs that make people a bit like machines. Um, but that doesn't mean that we will all be unemployed. Um, you know, some people see that as a good thing, that we are in a digital utopia now. Um, and well, what, your 
Sorry, sorry. What what are your thoughts? Is is it a, is it a digital utopia, or are we going to head towards some like dystopian galaxy? I think neither, actually. So yeah, some people see it as a digital utopia. The comparison is with Athens, um, where slavery um, meant that people had leisure time for the first time. So we will have all these machine slaves doing work for us, and we can laze around. Um, or we can all have a universal basic income and not have to work anymore. Um, yes, yeah, so that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is you know, it's a great fear for people with machines have taken our jobs. We're now um, economically unviable. Or actually, some people think you know, that, that machines may pose a great threat to, to humanity. Um, yeah, I, I don't think either is going to happen personally. Um, look, looking at all of the evidence, I think machines take away certain types of jobs and it's a bit like a rise in tide as that tide rises actually humans are freed up to do more human type jobs um, so there's this irony that actually um, sort of left brain activities were very valuable in the economy um, technical things and parents used to tell you go and get a profession that's the right way to lead your career um, that's changing now, actually. Any technical, specialised, narrow thing, machines will, over time, be able to do better than people. But where machines fall down is they don't have general intelligence. And so creativity, general problem solving, those more right brain activities, they're going to become more and more important. So essentially, we're becoming more human in the workplace. All those more human skills become more valuable. And you know, what that means is that you, you shouldn't just study, or if you have children, you shouldn't just get them to study maths and very technical programming things, but actually you should have a, a broad interdisciplinary education. So you should also study history, philosophy, all those things that make us human, make us more creative, make us better overall problem solvers. That's our advantage over machines. And and in, in in terms of you know the um, the education system, I mean, how how can governments how can we best approach that? Because it's very hard to know really what the jobs market is going to look like in the future. I have to say that you know my my, my personal opinion, and I think you touch on this somewhat in your book. Um, I think you quote like um, is it Andrew Yang? Um, he's also the author of. Um, the war on normal people um you know it, it's very hard to actually identify just how fast the impact of artificial intelligence and you know autonomous vehicles for instance are going to have on our overall on the overall jobs market so how do governments then approach that in terms of actually saying this is what the education system needs to be today to cater for a jobs market of tomorrow yes so um, it's very difficult to know what we're going to need in the jobs market of tomorrow. What we do know is that people need to be increasingly versatile and adaptable. So it's those skills that make you versatile and adaptable. You know, a lot of people now won't have just one career. You won't have a job for life. You'll have a portfolio career and there will be disruptions. Big events will happen. Um, obviously, we've, we, you know, within our lifetimes, we've seen digital transformation come completely reshape certain industries, um, you know, almost all industries. Then we've had big um, black swan events like COVID-19, 
which again completely changed workplace, gave a big spur to um, digitization, for example. So what we need are skills that make you versatile, make you adaptable, make you creative, and able to change as society changes. Um, and also, as I mentioned earlier, that interdisciplinary education, not just technical education, because ultimately machines are better at doing technical things than people are but more creative, more general problem-solving skills we need as well. See, and, and again, I mean, I, I think that the reality is, is that if AI does erode the jobs market in the way that it can, I don't think people are going to be having more like leisure time. I don't think they're going to be sitting around writing poetry and writing music. Um, I think they're going to be at a complete loss as, as to what to do. Um, I look at it from a slightly different perspective in terms of I think that actually with this AI revolution, there's an opportunity just to create millions and millions of more jobs. Um, and again, I think that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but, you know, I think what, when you say you talk about things like studying history and philosophy and those subjects, I think there's an argument to say that actually, you know, we are still hundreds of years away from having some form of artificial general intelligence. Um, and, you know, the, the robots and machines are not going to be able to replace that emotional intelligence. And there's an opportunity for people to have uh, jobs which, uh, again, are focused much more on caring, on teaching, on helping others. Um, but, I mean, uh, the, the idea of just no one having any jobs, um, I have to say, it, it concerns me. I, I, I'm, not, uh, I'm, I'm not that trusting of how people will invest their time. Yes, well, I mean, we've got artificial intelligence in the economy now, and we don't see a shortfall of jobs. Actually, there are more jobs than people in the UK, for example. We've got 1.3 million job vacancies at the moment. Um, so, and if you look at companies that employ a lot of artificial intelligence, I was actually with the all-party parliamentary group at Amazon. We were reviewing their AI um, at the biggest robotics warehouse in Europe. And a lot of that's automated. It's quite fascinating, actually. They've got these huge moving shelves that move around. And they do have some human pickers there working very hard, picking the items. And then there are other humans who are sort of managing all of the machines as well. But, you know, a company like Amazon is employing more and more people. Um, so I, I think the idea that machines are going to remove jobs is not really borne out by the evidence. Actually, we're at record levels of employment. In um, why, why do you think there's 1.3 million um, open vacancies in, in the UK? That's more political issues. For example, Brexit's yeah. had an impact on that. Right. We don't have the access to the talent pool. But I mean, used to have. the thing is, when you say like 1.3 million, um, and again, I don't know, but are these higher paying jobs or are these lower paying jobs? They're probably mainly lower paying jobs. But, you know, I think that the, the point is that as AI, as automation is coming to the economy, we haven't seen it removing jobs as such. Actually, you know, there's more jobs than people willing to do them at the moment in our economy. And if you look also, you know, so that's private sector jobs. So, you know, AI is removing tasks, not removing work. Um, work changes, people can do different types of jobs. Um, and then actually in the public sector, there's huge scope for more jobs as well, because there's many different social issues. 
So even if artificial intelligence moved people out of the private sector, those people could be gainfully employed in the public sector, um, doing things like um, fighting crime, better health, better education. So I think there's always going to be a need for people to work. Um, just the different types of work will change as machines come into the economy. And, and I mean, with, with that, I mean, you know, again, another thing that you talk about in your book is um, almost like robo-advisors in the financial services sector. Um, we've certainly seen this uptick, um, uptake rather, um, or uplift, should I say, um, of, of, of financial apps. You know, um, there's no end to the number of like apps you can now use to buy stocks through in a way that wasn't possible 10 years ago. There's a whole plethora of like knowledge and opinions and advice you know, you can go on YouTube. I mean, one thing you talk about is that the future of like robo advisors. So how will that look and how will people actually interact with their financial advisors in the future? Uh, right, okay. Yes, that's a very interesting question. So I think that in the future, potentially, there will be AI brand representations that represent companies. You can see, for example, already Amazon's Alexa plays that role to some degree. So Amazon's Alexa is the primary representation of Amazon's brand, and it's you know, able to, to, to hold conversations and engage with people. And I, I think that will be more and more common of lots of different companies. So you know, ultimately, you may get a, a, a walking, talking Mickey Mouse who can represent Disney. And that could also be, um, they can also have technical skills such as financial advisors as well. So you know, that's quite a profound change for marketing where AI is actually representing the brand of a company and becoming a, a um, dynamic uh, brand. So will I, will I just go, will I be like, Alexa, tell me who the best financial advisor is in, in, in London? Right, I mean, for, for financial advice, it's a very or, big one, yep. Or, or whatever, a car or a brand, a dentist, like, like cool, you know, is it gonna become, is, is Alexa gonna become part of our lives where, you know, we interact with like, Alexa, just, just tell us tell us who I should be hiring to, you know, help me with task A, B and C, whether it's a plumber, a financial advisor or, or an accountant. Ah, I see it slightly differently in that there'll yeah. be lots of Alexas, um, you know, so the, the the financial advisory will have their own Alexa that you'd engage with, um, or the, you know, the plumber would, would as well. So that not, not just one Alexa as a channel to all of those different businesses, but rather each business would build its own AI avatar to, um, to interact with you. I mean, in terms of financial advice, there's a lot that could be done with machine learning. For example, building, we've built a critical future, we build predictive models to predict, for example, Amazon stock price over a very short window. We can get very high accuracy on that. Um, also to predict different commodities can get very high accuracy. Um, the, the challenge with those models is that you, it's hard to understand market sentiment. You don't know necessarily what people are thinking, but you can connect them with natural language processing to Twitter or to different debating forums or where people debate you know, equities and what stocks to buy. And you can gauge the sentiment there as well. So you can, you can put that different um, feed in. Um, and then the last challenge you have is if there are any big macro events that could come along and disrupt your model, um, you know, war could break out, et cetera, 
So um, again, you need that connection to real world, perhaps through natural language, feed into the models. Um, and then those models could quite probably outperform human beings at making financial predictions. Right, that, that, that's incredible. When you talk about like making like short term price movements with um, uh, using AI, like, how, how good is it going to get? Like, would we get to a point where we'll have AI that will just always outperform the market? Quite possibly, yeah. Even over Actually, the short term? I, I think so, yes. Yeah, I mean, you're still a role for human humans as well. It's a human cost machine. Because, yeah. you know, what I was just talking about, there is also these, these other elements that people need to monitor, and need to be aware of. But there's certainly a role for, for machines to make those predictions. We've just built a model also to predict if the US is going to go into recession with machine learning, get very high oh, do you need <laughs> Do you need a machine learning model for that? Yeah, well, uh, I'm not going to, I can't reveal the, the result. Because you can't say. How does it work then? So, so what, what sort of, what sort, can you say what sort of like factors and variables would be considered for something like that? Yes, yeah, so essentially you have to research the different variables that could impact. Um, let's say, for example, we wanted to predict the price of nickel, then we'd have to research what are the variables impact the price of nickel. Um, and you get a long list, perhaps you know, 50 different variables that could impact the price. Um, using random forest machine learning, you can actually see which of those has predictive power. So you could narrow that down from 50 different data feeds that you'll pull into your model to 20. Um, and then essentially, those data needs to come in every day um, and then the machine runs against them, the algorithm runs against them, makes the prediction daily, and you can see you know, what the price of nickel is going to be. We've done that um, in the past, and our model gets very good accuracy, about 75% accuracy in predicting. And where do you even start with something like that? Do you start at the end and you say, right, we want to be able to predict the price of nickel, and here are the variables we're going to need to um, collect sufficient data on, or is it something? Yes. It is, it is. It's that way around. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a, a company would come to us with a business objective. Um, we want to achieve this. We want to you know, predict the price of nickel, whatever it may be. And then, you, you, yeah, then, then you'd have to do the research, identify what would be the key variables, and then go through a process of experimentation with different algorithms till you get the very highest performing, um, and then fine tune those models. And then you have your um, AI predictive model. So, so, I mean, and where, where, does, where does all this end? And again, I'm going to refer back to your book because, you know, one, I think one of the chaps in there, he says, like, will AI cause like mass unemployment, right? Like if, for example, AI is running all these algorithms, like why do you need humans um, in the banking sector? Why, like, you know, we've obviously always seen like this, like destruction almost of like traders on the trading floors that we've seen over the last 30 years. And now it's just all run by machines. Like, where if we have like robot financial advisors you know robot trading systems that are you know able to beat the market and i'm not even saying beat the market all, all day every day right because there's always going to be factors that they, that they won't be able to consider for now at least um you know what what, what impact is this going to have on the financial services sector well what happens is it, it changes the type of jobs that people in financial services do um, you know, to give you an example, when ATM machines came in, you could have assumed 
that that would mean there were no more bank tellers. But actually, bank tellers, as, as a in, in overall numbers, grew um, for about twenty years. Or likewise, um, when the spreadsheet was invented for accountants, that automated a lot of bookkeeping. But you didn't see a decline in bookkeepers. Actually, there's more bookkeepers now since uh, the spreadsheet. But isn't this different? Like, 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 it isn't like you know when people talk, talk compare like AI to like the the AI age to the industrial revolution. You know, it's very easy to teach someone to work in a factory on a production line, right? Whether it was for like Carnegie or Ford, like, you know, it was, you had a set like role that you did. However, with AI, it's such a complex environment that first of all, not everyone is going to be able to work in, 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 in that sector specifically. And yes, I, like I said earlier, you know, it will create subsectors, but isn't it going to get to a point where actually like humans are just redundant? And I'm well, not trying to put words in yeah. your mouth. Sorry, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Yes, no, I think, yeah, just, I, just think personally, I, I, I argue think, with it in my mind all the time. Yes, um, I think actually, uh, as mentioned earlier, you know, we're not seeing decline in jobs. People, the type of jobs we do change. We become more human. In one big area, for example, are relationships. You know, all companies need salespeople, need people doing relations. I can't ever see that a machine would take over that role because a machine cannot build a relationship in the same way human beings can. Um, so, and there are also machines lack the big picture, the general problem solving skills, the ability to put things together. Um, so for example, a machine, if, you're, if you were in a healthcare setting, uh, an AI algorithm could predict based on an image, if somebody has a health issue. So they could look at different scans, predict if someone has health. So if that's your job currently as a person to look at those scans to make a prediction, then you could be disrupted by AI taking over. So it's rather than having that narrow technical skill, it's better to be the person who takes that image, who deals with the patients, who has a more overall general role, puts elements together, because AI at the moment is only reduced to narrow so it's those more general skills that we need. So essentially, people are being sort of pushed up the pyramid to more human type general problem solving roles. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I definitely see that there's going to be a demand for roles that require high levels of emotional intelligence, um, certainly. Um, and your background, like, you know, obviously, like you're highly passionate about AI, you obviously, you know, you speak to the government uh, about like the, the way in which AI can be used to improve society. And I think, you know, you had some involvement in terms of speaking to them during the, the COVID pandemic or the, the peak of it. Um, where, where did this passion come from? Like, how did you step into this industry? I think that, you know, ultimately I'm an entrepreneur and I saw the profound impact that digitization had on the economy. And as I started to see progress in artificial intelligence, I realized that that would be the next profound impact on the economy. And so I built up an expertise in that area, and positioned um, my company, Critical Future, as an AI specialist, you know, for a long time, we've been doing it since 2014. So before it was trendy, really, um, people sort of thought we were selling magic beans. <laughs> we tried to tell them, um, you know, what, what could be done with deep learning. 
Um, and so we build up you know, both a practical knowledge of how to actually put machine learning into practice. And also we did lots of research and you know, written books about it and lectured on the topic, et cetera, because we had that prescience to see that this is gonna be increasingly important area. And AI actually has gone through a renaissance really since around 2013, the power of deep learning, because there was a lot of excitement about AI going back to the 1950s. There was the, the Dartmouth conference and the, the founding fathers of AI, um, John McCarthy, Marvin Minsky, et cetera. They came up with the term artificial general, artificial intelligence. So before then, for example, um, Alan Turing, in my view, was the real founder of what we now call AI. He spoke about thinking machines. And in, in 1945, he did a lecture about how machines will ultimately, in the future, become more intelligent than human beings. Um, and he, ha he had an associate called Good who came up with this idea of the intelligence explosion. So once machines reach this point of more intelligence than humans, they can then redesign themselves and they can run away and have this intelligence explosion. And that's where you know, the concept of singularity comes from. At that point, all history is over. Everything's changed because a feat of engineering that could have taken a million years to do could be done a day because there's this super intelligence that can achieve all this. And so that's a very exciting vision that the early founding fathers of AI had. And, and in the Dartmouth conference, they come up with this term artificial intelligence. Some people didn't like it. They said it makes it sound phony. That this is something artificial about this. Other people said, well, ultimately, people will respect it because it represents a very important field. And I, th I think that's what come to happen. And so those guys in the Dartmouth conference, they underestimated how difficult AI was. And they thought they could create sort of human level AI very quickly. Even in a matter of weeks, they could get to um, a lot of key milestones there. Um, and then AI became a bit unfashionable in the 70s and 80s. And when people were making AI applications, they would give them different names. You know, this is cognitive education, for example. People didn't want to invest in AI. And it wasn't until really um, Jeffrey Hinton made some great breakthroughs with deep learning, back propagation, and then DeepMind, uh, Google DeepMind, proved that deep learning could win at games like Go and chess, that huge amount of excitement generated around AI. And at that point, nations started to invest. So China saw Google DeepMind win at Go. And that was a Sputnik moment for them. So they realized then that actually they're behind in artificial intelligence, just like the United States realized they were behind when Russia had launched a Sputnik satellite and they made their mission to put man on the moon by the end of the 60s. Um, so China had this similar Sputnik moment. They invested billions and billions. When was that? What, what, what year was that? That was in, okay. uh, I think it was around 2017, 2018, when Google DeepMind won at Go, because Go is an ancient Chinese strategy game. Sure. And for, for Google to become, with a machine, the world champion, beat the, beat the Chinese world champion, that was a profound moment for China. And so they put, billions, they put a huge amount of national resource into AI, and now they are possibly on a par with the United States in AI. They're doing, they're really excellent in, in that area. Because but in, that. in terms of the quality or in terms of the like level of investment? Well, yes, it's a good question. So if you looked at the number of 
academic publications, I think China has more. Some people would argue they're more quantity than, than quality. But when we see in the business world, for example, that Chinese companies are very advanced in AI in different sectors. Um, also, actually, you saw in the COVID pandemic, there was lots of different Chinese AI solutions that were used um, then. Um, I'm sure they've got very advanced military solutions as well. So it's almost a, a battle between nations, AI, because... Yeah, that's what, that's what I wanted to ask you. Like, how, like, like how, how far does this battle between, between the countries actually go? And you know, I, I've always been very much from the school of thought that whichever country regulates AI first and regulates blockchain and you know the way in which blockchain technologies are used, like they're pretty much going to be the, con the country that gets ahead of, of the pack. With AI, it's obviously slightly different, is it not? It's, it's, more, it's more than just regulating it. It's just about whoever's got the most advanced AI, AI is pretty much going to rule the world. Well, that, yeah, that's exactly what Vladimir Putin said, actually. Yeah, whoever... <laughs> right, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Whoever rules in AI will rule the world. Yeah, so I, 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 I won't take that comparison, but yeah, okay. But, no, but yeah. is, is there any truth in it? Absolutely. Right. Truth in it, yeah. I mean, it, I think, you know, first of all, economically, um, having very advanced AI really fuels an economy. And then on the other side, you have the military capabilities that you can derive from AI. You know, any future war between great powers would be a technological war. And so um, having very advanced AI is really fundamental. To that. And so, again, I mean, you know, with critical future, um, you're obviously at the forefront, the cutting edge of, of AI. What, what is the overarching like company mission? What is it that you guys are really like looking to achieve for the world? That's a great question. We would like to make our small contribution towards general AI. So one area that we work in is in collective AI. So for example, currently there are lots of different machine learning applications, deep learning applications but they work in silos and you can't transfer from one domain to another. And even within your company's own technology stack, often it's all working in silos. You have several different machine learning models, but they're not working cooperatively. And you know, we know from human and animal intelligence that people are much smarter in teams, in organizations, nations. This is when we're much smarter. Actually, there's been some very sad cases of child abuse where children have been left on their own and parts of the brain don't develop. Um, it's, uh, it's through social interaction, through working collectively that we become very intelligent. And so we think exactly the same thing is true for machines. So we've been pioneering this idea of collective intelligence where you can have lots of different machine learning models, but you have one meta model, which helps them to all work as a team. Um, and so we think that's our contribution towards ultimately getting towards more human level AI, which is the destiny of the field. But when you talk about humans suffering some form of like privation or maybe deprivation um, and the impact that has on like one's cognitive ability, are you making that same comparison to the way in which AI is evolving? Yes, what I mean is that when human beings are left with just pure individual intelligence. You know, very sadly, some human beings have been left children just on their own in a room, in a darkened room. 
parts of the human brain don't actually develop and they can show that with brain scans and it's fundamental to our intelligence is both a collective intelligence that we're all working together that we're sharing intelligence and also a cumulative intelligence now for example when isaac newton um, discovered gravity he wrote his main works he said he was standing on the shoulders of giants if, if i have seen further because i'm standing on the shoulder of giants what he meant is that he's benefiting from all the cumulative knowledge of other human beings over millennia or centuries and likewise machines need that at the moment machines are restricted to working in silos but they need to work collectively and, and also draw on this cumulative knowledge to really get to levels of general or human level AI. That's what we think of critical future. And that's that's the area that we're focusing on. It's, I've got to ask you this. I, I actually um, filmed a podcast with IBM yesterday. And okay. I, I've got, I've got, I'm very curious to hear what your thoughts are on this. Sentient AI, is it a thing? Is it oh, something right. yeah. yeah, well, that was, there was this fascinating leak from Google. Some people think it's a PR stunt. Um, but um, Limioni, a Google engineer, leaked transcripts of their model Lambda. And it was brilliant. The, the, the language model was absolutely brilliant at face value. And it, it more than passed the Turing test, I think. And actually, if you look at when Alan Turing originally devised the Turing test, which I include in my book, how he characterized the conversation between an, a machine and a human is very similar. The Lambda, the, the human is talking to the machine about different works of literature, and the, the, the AI is, is, is replying you know, very intelligently about that. And it was very reminiscent, this conversation between Lambda and Lemioni um, of Alan Turing's original Turing test. But I, so I think the machine more than passed the Turing test. It was showing like a, like a very fluent, intelligent human. But the, I mean, the questions in my company, we've got lots of PhDs in NLP and in, in, in different fields of machine learning. And some of them are more skeptical. You know, they say, for example, this is not a peer reviewed publication. These results are not reproducible. Right. We don't know if, if that was actually true or, or, or not. But you know, we do know Google has enormous amounts of data, enormous amount of computing power and, and the cash to train a model like that. So they could have built this enormous language model you know, could well, I think, be getting those incredible results. And it just shows you how far and how quickly um, artificial intelligence is, is developing. And I, I think um, if we do get to a point where we have sentient AI, um, we'll have a lot more than 1.3 million jobs available in the UK. Um, you know, everything is just going to get replaced by, by, by robots at that point, surely. Well, yes. I mean, that's a that's a very big question. Was that model actually sentient? Is it? It's a huge question. Um, you know, I was just interested in it because the model was so brilliant. I don't actually think it's I get you. sentient yet. But um, you're saying yet, but, but but is it is it something that like you think within our lifetimes that we will see like sentient AI? Will we be walking down the road and seeing like robots, and these robots will be able to have a sense of humor and they'll be able to make jokes and laugh and feel like emotions in, in even if it's artificial as we were saying you know is it something that they will they will be able to portray definitely yes yeah absolutely and uh, machines can recognize emotions in people protect better than people so they can recognize emotions in facial um, expressions in tone of voices 
for example. So um, definitely you'll have machines that can display the full range of human capabilities. Whether those machines are actually sentient or not is uh, you know, quite a profound question, um, more of a philosophical question. I think my view on it would be that it doesn't matter so much. There's this Chinese room argument in AI. I don't know if you've come across that, but it's a philosophical debate. And there's a Chinese room and the argument is you could have a machine that could learn Chinese, but it doesn't really truly understand. It's not showing true intelligence. And my response would be to that, that it doesn't matter so much. As long as the machine is demonstrating intelligence, um, that's the most important thing. Interesting. And Adam, uh, just, just to wrap this up, and you know, what's next for you? You've obviously you mentioned that you've got uh, another book um, that you're working on, um, Critical Future. Like, where are you guys focusing and what does the future look like for you guys right now? Yes. So we're currently building our own forecasting platform to predict different useful things that companies need. So rather than companies having to go to the trouble of hiring their own data scientists and building machine learning models, we will have a lot of the key macro things they need to predict in our um, platform. Um, yes, and we're solving some really exciting challenges for companies and yeah, be very pleased to be part of a um, one of the most important industries, you know, as you are, Lawrence, as well. It's growing fast, that's for sure. Hey, are you familiar with like Palantir Technologies? Sorry, I talk about them a lot, but are you familiar with like the sort of like the the work that, that they're doing? I mean, I've no of them. I couldn't say I, I don't have a no. an knowledge. It's interesting because we're certainly seeing like this um, rapid like evolution of companies in the AI space. I think it's something you and I probably spoke about. Try to think when now, at least like two or three years ago, where um, you know all of a sudden like AI companies are actually just becoming a thing. So it's uh, yeah, it's definitely an interesting industry to watch. But Adam, it's been really great speaking with you, and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I look forward to um, reading your next book when it's out. Great, real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much, Lawrence. Thank you. Bye.